Well, how lovely it is to be here, and you you brought the sunshine on for me. You know, in Ireland this year, we've had our worst summer. We're the other way around, of course. You know, it's winter, coming into winter now. And um, we've had our worst summer in, about, I think, about 17 or 18 years. We hardly saw the sunshine at all. In fact, before I came, I didn't even have a pair of sandals because the summer was so bad. So I had to go and buy a pair of sandals because Ruth says it's going to be warm, you know. So um, I'm just waffling a bit so that you get the hang of my accent. <laughs> And um, I'll try to slow down a little so that I don't talk too fast for you. It is a delight um, to be with you. And thank you, Christine, for your very kind invitation. Um, and thank you for coming. I don't know if I would come to hear somebody that I had never heard before um, or not. Well, I think I would, actually. But um, uh, it's a delight to have the opportunity to be with you. I'm just going to mention uh, I spend most of my time now... Um, writing and, and speaking particularly to women. I have a, a great heart for women, being a woman myself. I kind of know what you're going through, ladies. And so um, it, it, it's a real joy for me to speak uh, and to minister with ladies. Uh, and I write. Um, the majority of my books would be read by women, but not exclusively so, which is always a surprise to me. Um, so I'm going to very briefly tell you about the books and then I'll get on to tell you why I'm here um, to share with you something of my own personal story. Um, you will hear about my own personal story uh, this evening, um, which is what uh, we thought was probably a good way to start my first trip to Australia. Although my mum, who's 85, she's a wee bit nervous about me going so far away. And I said to her, how do you feel about, about going, me going to Australia, mummy? And she thought for a minute. Well... It's all right as long as you don't go back. I so, <laughs> thought that was a strange way to put it. Um, but it's, I'm very far away from them. As you can imagine, you, you can't get on the bus if something happens. But um, it, it's a delight uh, just to be here. You'll hear a bit about my own personal story. The, 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 the book that will fill in all the gaps, as it were, is this book called Under the Rainbow. And um, as I say, it fills in the things that, that I don't, that I won't have time to tell you this evening. And I'll not say any more about that because I'm going to uh, share a fair wee bit of the content of that with you. It always amazes me, the fact, and I shouldn't be amazed, but I'm always amazed the fact that God is a God who keeps his promises. You know, no matter who we are, we promise we're going to call and see a certain person and before you know it, the week's been too busy and it's flown in and you don't mean to break your promise, perhaps, but it falls by the wayside. God never breaks his promises. And, and I have uh, been so blessed and encouraged down through the years by the promises of God in my own life. And um, I was speaking at a, at a meeting, a ladies' event one evening back at home and this young woman came up to speak to me uh, and she, she thanked me for what I'd shared and she was very young and we sat down together and, and she told me that she had just buried her little baby six weeks earlier. And uh, I was just so moved that she had the courage to be there and as we shared together uh, over some very specifics from the Bible. Um, she said, you talk a lot about the promises of God. Would you not write a book about the promises of God? And so I wrote this little book called Rainbows for Rainy Days. It's 40 devotional readings on the promises of God. It's just a, a little verse of scripture uh, for each day, and then underneath it there's an inspirational thought. It's a lovely gift book. It's not only for those who have had rainy days in their lives hopefully it will encourage anyone um, but it's a great little gift book because it's it's a hardback full color but it that's where that book came from and i have been amazed at how god has used that little book uh, then um i wrote this book called god knows your name we all at times face situations of rejection in our lives Sometimes you wonder, does anybody know me? Am I headless here? People ignoring me, you know? If I disappeared tomorrow, would anybody notice? And um, I wrote this book called God Knows Your Name, and it's a collection of short stories. There are six sections in the book. Each section has two stories. And I have uh, written uh, under the themes of rejection, themes like when we feel nameless or hopeless or helpless or worthless or loveless and I have looked uh, at 
the situation, a story told of someone in the Bible. And I have researched it a lot and, and I have done a retelling of that story, um, of that situation of rejection and how God stepped in to help that person. And I have paired it with someone living today. Um, because I feel that it's very relevant. The difficulties that we have today are really not that different than the difficulties people suffered way back then. But the amazing thing is, is that the God of the Bible is still the God of today. And so I pair these stories in this. It's, it's um, 12 short stories, a very easy read, and hopefully will encourage people to look more intently at, at the Bible stories for themselves. And then during my uh, period of um, almost 20 years that I'm going to speak about in a moment, I asked a lot of the big questions. You know, why suffering? And if there's suffering, why does it have to happen to me? You know, it's okay, the minister might say on a Sunday, God loves you. Well, it doesn't feel like he loves me. How do I know that God loves me if this is happening in my life? And I've looked at some of the big questions that we ask in life. And I've looked at what the Bible says about it. And it's not heavy theological book. It, it's a lot of stuff that God has taught me through his own word. And it's illustrated by the lives of stories of the lives of other people. Take, for example, there's a chapter on forgiveness. Forgiveness, a journey worth taking. And I've looked at what the Bible says about, uh, about the fact that we should forgive people who have wronged us. And uh, the illustration in this story is taken from the life of a man that I had the privilege to meet and he was, um, his little girl when she was very young was um, taken away by um, a, a paedophile and was very badly assaulted and murdered and thrown in the local dam. And this man told me that for years he ran around with a, a knife in his pocket because he said if he found the man who'd killed his little girl, his little Jennifer, he was going to finish him off. And yet, the day that I met with him, two days earlier, after many years, Robert Black, the paedophile in the United Kingdom, one of the worst child murderers of our day, had just been found guilty of the death of his little girl. And he says, I sat as close to him as, as feet away. I could have reached forward and touched him. And he said, you know what? I didn't feel any bitterness, any anger. He says, it might sound strange, he said, and, and some people might say, oh, you couldn't be a father and not hate that man. He says, but I don't. How did that happen? How did he get to the point, that point in his life? It was his relationship with Jesus Christ that had changed his heart. And, uh, and so that's the type of thing that I look at in the book. I, I look at what the Bible says, and then I tell a story that will illustrate the teaching in that truth. So that was the first four. And then um, the main reason that I came across, actually, um, was this new book that just came out in the summer. Well, the summer at home. Your winter. <laughs> and it's called uh, When We Can't, God Can. And the subtitle is Encounters with the God of the Impossible. I don't know about you, but every now and then, impossible situations seem to drop on our laps, don't they? Uh, and we have a tendency when they do to uh, shout somewhere, and often we shout at God and say, I can't do that. And this book is written in the same style as God Knows Your Name, in that I've taken a, a, a story from the Bible, and I've retold it, and I have paired it up with the story of someone living today but it's all on situations where people have faced what we would call humanly impossible situations the last section in the book for example is that God is able when my life is not my own and I've looked at the the whole business of human trafficking and the first story is actually the story of a little girl's story um, from the Old Testament um, we don't know her name I've given her a name in the book, but we don't know her name. Uh, she was uh, very often uh, referred to as Naaman's little maid. And that was a story of child trafficking, where this child was uprooted by the Syrians and taken captive into a foreign land to be a slave. And I've told her story and, and what God did through that young woman. And then I have matched that up with the story of a young woman living today um, in Asia. And I had the privilege of of um, being given her story 
and of how uh, she had been trafficked in the sex trade and, and how um, she has not only been rescued from that but how her life has been transformed. So that's the kind of thing that we're looking at here that when we say we can't, that God can. And, and that was the reason why Ruth said to me a year ago when she heard the new book was coming, I was just, oh, please come to Australia and uh, speak to us from, from the theme uh, of this book. Now, you'll probably not remember all of that. So there are some little leaflets at the back if you want to take one. Now, they are from home, so I'm afraid they've got sterling, British sterling prices on them. Just ignore the price. The little paragraph will remind you what the books are about. The only thing is the new one isn't on it because the leaflets are... Um, were produced before before the book was. I have absolutely no say in the pricing of the books apart from the fact that I want to give you my author's discount. The books, I can't bring books into the country. I, I would need a special license to bring them in. And so I have um, retrieved Kurong's supply of my books. And uh, so they have priced the books but I am giving um, uh, $2 off the price of every book um, if you're interested in buying books this evening. They're all signed, but if you would like a name added, if you're thinking of a Christmas gift and you have somebody in mind or yourself, I can add your name to that and that one. So I'm sorry about all the advertising, but I thought, since you don't know anything about the books, you might as well hear something. And so let's just have a little look at this whole business, because as I said... Often in our own lives, we are faced with these impossible situations. And I personally have been one who has said, probably too often, I can't do this. I can't face this anymore. And what I want to do is just share a wee bit of my story. But I would like to read a few verses um, that have been extremely helpful to me um, from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And uh, some of you will know these verses. They're, they're quite well known from Isaiah chapter 40. And it's just a couple of verses and it starts like this. O Israel, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? How can you say God refuses to hear your case? Have you never heard or understood? Don't you know that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth? He never grows faint or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to those who are tired and worn out. He offers strength to the weak. Even youths will become exhausted and young men will give up. But those who wait on the Lord will find new strength. They will fly high on wings like eagles. They will run and not go we grow weary. And they will walk and not faint. You've already heard that I come from, from Ireland. My childhood was a very happy one. I have a brother and a sister. Uh, I'm the middle child. That You know, the psychologists say there's a wee bit of a problem with the middle child. But... <laughs> really wasn't too bad most of the time. Uh, I was the middle child. My, my family at that time, when I was born, were living uh, in, in working class Belfast. Um, but I'm very fortunate to have been brought up by parents uh, who not only loved each other, but loved their family and their children and did their very best to give them the best that they possibly could. So my childhood was a very happy one. And church was also part of our lives. Uh, back in those days, I know I'm older than a whole lot of you girls here. I'm very sorry about that, but that's what happens. Um, and back in those days, our families, most of them went to church every Sunday. Unfortunately, even as a teenager, I had this kind of a, a tick box mentality of, of what it meant to be a Christian. I had this notion that if you did this and this and this, then you'd be a Christian. And, and if you didn't do this or this or this, then that would reinforce it. And that was my idea of what a Christian was. And that was until the age of, of 14 when there was a, a series of events that happened in my life. One of them being that the girl who was the noisiest girl in school, you know, believe it or not, Ruth won't believe this, but I used to be quiet in my day. And uh, I really was quite a quiet teenager. And this girl in class wasn't if there was trouble to be had, she was right in the centre of it. And her, she couldn't whisper, her voice was always like a megaphone, if you know what I mean. 
But I noticed that something seemed to have happened to her and I couldn't understand quite what it was. But I kept a wide berth from her because she kind of wasn't one of my close friends and, and I kind of stayed away from her. Uh, until one night it was my turn to walk the dog. I don't like dogs. And our family always had dogs. And the three of us always had to take turns in the evening to walk the dog. And so the idea with me, I lived in, and we'd moved out to Newton Abbey at the stage, and not that that'll mean anything to you, but I, we lived in this, this house at a very busy junction, and I always tried to do the shortest walk in the shortest time, but as long as the dog was taken out, that was it. And I would go down the road, and I would go to the zebra crossing, cross the zebra crossing, come up the other side as fast as I could, get in and get rid of the dog into the back porch. That was the walk over for the day. I'm sorry for you, the dog lovers amongst you, but everybody else loved dogs in our house except me, and that was my job. And on this Friday night in particular, out I went with the dog, and the traffic was very busy on the road, and I saw this girl from school walking up the road. And I thought, oh dear, how am I going to get away from her? And I looked this way and that way, and the traffic was too much, and I, and I couldn't get away, and she was coming along. And, and it looked a wee bit menacing, because she had these wee leaflets in her hand, and I didn't know what she was giving out, and I really didn't know who wanted it. And, uh, and she came up, and she says, oh, hello, Catherine, she says. Do you live up around here? And uh, I said, yes, I do. And, and she talked, and she talked about something that was happening at her church, which I kind of stepped back in amazement and uh, she said um, we'll have a, a special meeting for the young people on Sunday night would you come with me and I was afraid to say no because I thought <laughs> I see her every day in school and I really, I'm really not quite sure about this at all and uh, so anyway I said oh well well, well I have to ask my mum but, but, but oh, come with us come with us so anyway I said yes to get away from her down I went across and went up the other side and the whole time my heart was thumping and I thought what have I done what have I done what, what's all this about and I, and I, I went in home and I told my mum I'd met this girl from school and, and she asked me to go to her youth group and she says well you're not going and, I, and I, I said, but mum, you don't know what kind of girl this is. I mean, you don't say no to this girl. <laughs> and, and she says, well, I don't like that church down the road. You're not going. And so over the weekend, eventually I coaxed her and she said I could go to this church down the road. And uh, I went on the Sunday night and it was, uh, I was to meet her at 8 o'clock and kind of hoped she wouldn't turn up because we'd just come back again. But there she was, standing outside the gates, with a smile on her face as if I had been caught and I felt like a trapped rabbit, you know. And, and, and I went into this, uh, this meeting and the place was packed. Wall-to-wall young people and they were on the floor and, you know, why sit on a seat when you can sit on the floor, young people? Um, although all the seats were taken and so we squeezed in the back and I started to listen to these young people sing. I didn't know what they were singing. I didn't know any of these songs that were different than the ones we had sung at our church. And um, they were singing about Jesus in a way that I'd never heard before. And I, I, I kind of, it pricked me a wee bit and I listened in and I heard different ones talk and they talked about Jesus as if he was their friend and this was definitely strange to me. But anyway, good little girl that I was, the curfew was on, I had to be in for 10 o'clock. And so I slipped out the back and I went up that road, a different girl than I came down because I was totally confused. Because my little tick boxes just weren't working anymore as to what a Christian was. And I couldn't get to sleep. I shared a bedroom, I got in and I put my head around the living room door and I said to my mum, I'm home mum. And I'm just going on up to bed, I'm tired. And I went up and I went into the room that I shared with my sister and she was fast asleep. And uh, I couldn't get to sleep because all I could think about was some of the things that these young people had said. And I thought, but I thought being a Christian, that you were a Christian, you know, if you went to church, surely that was enough. Surely, what is this? And I couldn't close my eyes because I couldn't get a picture out of my head of something some of them said that night. And it was about a man who had died on a cross outside of Jerusalem and he died for me. And so I was only 14. I didn't know any fancy words. I didn't know anything else. And I, I just got out of bed and I just said, God, will you make me a Christian? 
I want you to be my friend. And as I say, there were no great bolts of lightning and I didn't know what was going to happen next. And I just got into bed and I went to sleep. But it was the beginning of a new life for me. And a short time later, uh, I met my um, first, well, no, a lie. He was my second boyfriend. The other one only lasted about five days. <laughs> and uh, I was in the science room in school. And I'd love to tell you I was studying, but I wasn't. I was in the science room in school at lunchtime. And in those days, in the grammar schools back at home, uh, the girls did domestic science and the boys did science. And, and, and that's, you know, we learned how to flip pancakes while they were doing, working out the problems of the world. And... Um, <laughs> What was on in the science lab at lunchtime was the Scripture Union prayer meeting. And amazing things were happening in our school at that time. It was a very special time. And across the table, the other side of this unlit Bunsen burner, I found out what it was sticking up on the table when it was at prayer meeting. And behind this unlit Bunsen burner was this guy, and I thought, oh, he's nice. <laughs> he was older than me. And he had blue eyes, and he had lots of hair. He doesn't hardly have any hair at all now, but he had lots of hair. And, um, and then I heard him pray, and I was really struck by this young man. He left school a few years before me, but we, um, the, the story of our romance is a different one. It's quite amusing, but I don't have time. You can ask me later um, about that. But um, he headed off to Bible college because he believed that, that God was calling him um, to the foreign mission field actually and I headed off to do my nurse training in the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast during a time of the very serious troubles in Belfast at that time um, and so Philip was off at Bible College, I trained as a nurse and we did that because we, we loved God and we wanted to follow him and as far as we were concerned we believed God was sending us across the world and therefore we needed to be as prepared as we could when Philip finished at Bible College, six weeks before I did my nursing finals, we were married. I was married when I was 20. Um, married 38 years now, so the mass is going, I'm 58, okay, that'll save any brain power. <laughs> and um, we're married 38 years now. Uh, uh, Philip, as soon as he finished Bible College, he started working um, as an evangelist in the area, uh, working with schools and young people and coffee bar missions and all of the things that were going on in churches and and all of that, while we waited for God to open the door of where he wanted us to go, and while I did my midwifery training, because there was no point in me going anywhere unless I could deliver the odd baby or two, you know, so I headed um, to do my midwifery training. And as far as we were concerned, as a young couple who loved God, and who, who were in love with each other, and who thought life was great, it was as if the road in front of us was completely straight. We knew where we were going, what we were going to do. Everything in the garden was rosy. We had very little money, but you know what? It, it didn't matter. We got by, and uh, as they used to laugh about, we lived on love and all the rest of it, and it, everything was wonderful. And just before our second wedding anniversary, um, our first child was born. And I'm just looking at this because... I don't know what your cots are like here in maternity hospitals, but the little cribs in, in, at home are perspex, are they that here? You know, and um, I can remember when our, when our first child was born, we had a little girl, and uh, when her daddy took her, he said, we'll have to call her Cheryl. And I thought, that's not on our list. <laughs> Where did you get that name from? And he says, oh, we'll have to call her Cheryl. He says, I didn't think we were going to have a wee girl, so well, we have to call her Cheryl because Cheryl means darling. You see, it's more romantic than you think. <laughs> so anyway, Cheryl came into our lives, and I can remember that night um, when he had gone home, looking in through the little perspex crib at her little face, and just thinking, life is perfect. There is nothing more I could wish for in life than to have a man who loves me, a God who has my life, and a purpose in life, and now a baby of our own. And so this beautiful blue-eyed blonde came into our lives. 
but when she was only seven months old, a paediatrician used words that turned our world upside down. And back then he used a word perhaps that's not so, so used today, but I'll give you the exact words that he said. Because when he had her in his arms, he said, Mrs. Campbell, don't you realise that your little girl is handicapped? She will never be normal. That was in response to me saying, because they thought her development was a bit slow, that was in response to me saying, she'll catch up, but won't she? She'll be all right. She's just a little girl. She's just fine. And he said, she will never be normal. And all of a sudden, that straight road that we thought we knew we were heading down had a bend in it. And we had no idea what was around the corner for us. No idea what would happen to our child, what this would mean, this never be normal. We certainly believed that no missionary organisation would take a couple and take them across the world if they had a disabled child. And in almost an instant, with a sentence, it was like a life sentence. And for the first time since I was 14 years old, my life started to shake and I didn't know anymore. The things that had been so sure, the fact that God loved me, how could he love me if this has happened? The fact that we were serving, how, how can we talk to other people about him whenever... They look at our lives and, and they see imperfection. How, how can we get through this? And I had no idea what it would mean for Cheryl. Because at that time, uh, they, they weren't able to tell us exactly how she would progress or not progress. And my life started to shake. And none of it made any sense. As far as I was concerned, this was stupid. This was crazy. How could this happen to me. You see, up until that time, nothing had rocked my boat. Everything was secure. I became angry. I was confused. And I had a heart full of questions. And one of the things I said way back then, which is perhaps why I used the title for the book today, was, I can't do this. God, I can't do this. But as I share something of my story with you, it's intermingled with the dealings that God had with my life because God, ladies, is a merciful God. You see, he understands our pain and sometimes we can throw away these statements, but he does. And he's willing to speak into our questions. You see, ladies, I believe that God is a speaking God. Maybe sounds a bit strange to you, but I do. And this is how he speaks. He speaks through his written word. Okay, we may not audibly hear him through ear gate. But how he speaks to us is as we open his word and we read what is written, it comes through our eyes and into our minds and down into our hearts and God speaks to us. And so I was devastated with all that was going on. Oh yes, my husband was a preacher and so you can imagine I put my smile on to go to church every Sunday and people said, how are you coping? And I said, oh I'm fine. And I lied through my teeth because I wasn't fine. And when I got home, I would have had another cry and another question. And that was how my life was going at that time. And I just didn't understand what was going on. And then on one particular evening, my husband was away working with a church in England uh, uh, who were having a mission at that time. And he headed off to England. And on that particular night, I put Cheryl into her wee cot and the wee sweetheart she, she was totally oblivious to all that was going on she was still the same beautiful child in spite of the diagnosis that had been stamped onto her and I put her to bed and I went into bed myself and I pulled the duvet up over my head I don't know about you but 
I don't know what it is about women that, you know, we do our best crying whenever there's nobody about and whenever we can have a duvet over our head or something. And I put the duvet over my head and I started to cry. And I said, God, this doesn't make any sense. I don't know what you're doing in my life. And as I quietened down, I could hear God speak. And the way that he spoke was through words that I had read before and I'd kind of hidden them in my heart and didn't realize it. And on that particular night, he reminded me of something that I'd read before. And this is what God said to one very troubled young mother. He said, do not be afraid. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. And the reality of his presence was so real in the room, I could nearly hear him breathe. Catherine, I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you go through waters of great difficulty, I will be with you. And when you go through rivers of disappointment, you will not drown. And when you walk through the fire of suffering, you will not be burned up by those flames. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. You know, ladies, that night was a very special night because I sensed God in the room so much. And as I listened to what he had to say to me, I heard a couple of words in particular. Because, you see, I had this silly notion that because I was a Christian, nothing bad could ever happen to me. You know what? I've read this book from cover to cover I don't know how many times. It's not in the book. We are not promised a trouble-free life. And when God said to me that night, when you walk through waters of great difficulty, he didn't say, if you happen to be one of the unlucky ones, where trouble lands on your lap. No, he says when. You see, there's none of us immune from trouble. Your difficulty may be different than mine, but there are none of us who are spared from trouble because we live in a fallen world. And God said when, not if. There are no promises of this trouble-free life that I thought wrongly were there. And yet, I made an amazing discovery. Because when he said, when you walk through waters of great difficulty, he made me a promise. Because he said, I will be with you. You don't have to walk alone, Catherine. I'm going to walk with you every single step of the way. Yes, ladies, over 30 years later, I can tell you, yes, there were waters of difficulty. Yes, there were rivers of disappointment. Sometimes I felt I was drowning in it. But he kept his promise. He kept my head above water and we've always made it to the other side. Yes, there have been flames of suffering. I have a grave in Ballyclare, not far from my home. That's the kind of suffering that I've gone through. But you know what? He's kept his promise every single step of the way. That's who he is. God is the one who has kept his promise. You see, ladies, I want to say to you tonight, whatever it is is going on in your life, and you may be in a good time tonight, and I rejoice with you for that. There are many of you who are young women here, and you're in a good time. Rejoice in it, and get to know God now. Now's the time for the preparation. And so God kept his promise, and he will walk with you just as he's walked with me. Because this promises for those who will trust him. And we started to take a different journey than we had planned. We headed around that bend that we couldn't see where we were going. But we headed around that bend with God by our side. Two and a half years after Cheryl was born, we had a little boy. Uh, a big boy, actually. He was 8 pounds 14 and he had a head like a rugby ball. And he was a big bruiser and we named him Paul and he was and still is a delight in our lives he was a happy healthy boy and you know it was just wonderful to have a little one in your home who 
could play with their toys, who could give you that wee kiss, who could put their wee arms or wee chubby arms around your neck and, and, and do all the things that normal children can do. And so Paul was and still is a delight in our lives. And time went on and we, we looked after Cheryl and as the time went past we, we realised just how, how disabled um, how disabled she was and whenever she was almost six and Paul was three and a half <clears throat> I was expecting another baby and every two weeks I was going to the antenatal genetic clinic in uh, Belfast and in, in the Royal Maternity Hospital and I was going there to have um, skull measurements done on, on the baby that I was carrying because Cheryl had a condition where her brain had stopped growing and so um, we knew that whatever the doctor said at those tests that we would have the baby I believe that life is precious and sacred but I'm also one of these people that likes to be prepared and I kind of felt yes I'm going to go for the test because I would rather know and we'd had Paul and gone through all of that and he was well and he was healthy and so we thought last time we'll go for another baby and at one particular um, visit just four weeks or so before the baby was born, the doctor um, was wiping the, the jelly off my tummy, in my rather large tummy, and the wand of the ultrasound. And he said, home in a boat, Mrs. Campbell, nothing wrong with this baby. This one's perfect. This one's perfect. Can you imagine the difference of those two declarations over two different children? Cheryl, she will never be normal. The baby I was expecting, this one's perfect. And I was like a barrage balloon. I didn't do pregnancy daintily. Uh, Ruth's daughter is due in next week, I think. And, you know, she's so dainty, you know. I mean, my nose was even pregnant. <laughs> I, I was just... Every, but I tell you, I floated out of RMH that day. Really, it's a good job with shoes on her. I wouldn't have been on the ground at all. Such excitement and the word spread far and near. Catherine's got the all clear. The baby's okay. Even got a phone call from Bolivia. From a friend. My mummy rang me and told me everything's fine. We're so pleased. We're so, we've been praying so much. And so we prepared for this other little one to join us. And... In due time, a week earlier than she was than she was due to come, and I've given away what it was. It was another little girl, and uh, on this occasion, for some reason or other, when this little girl was born, the midwife wrapped her up in the green towel and put her in her daddy's arms first before me, and he was sitting at my head, and you know, fathers and their daughters just besotted. He just looked into her wee wrinkled face and he just said, "We'll have to call her Joy." <laughs> There is no other name we could give this child. Because God has given us a healthy daughter. And so I could not argue because she was joy and joy by nature and joy. We took her home, our little bundle of joy, uh, absolutely thrilled to bits. And Paul um, was so delighted. He was going to have... He didn't really mind at three and a half that it wasn't a boy. Once he got over the being told it wasn't a boy, he was all right. And uh, he came in the next day into the hospital with a little pair of pink frilly socks that he had picked in the shops with his granny by himself. And he just dropped it in on top of her on the cot. And he says, he said, what do you call it? <laughs> and I says, well, it's not a knit. It's a little girl. And this is Joy. And he just looked in and he says, Joy, I'm your big brother, Paul. And so, as I say, Joy came home. Joy by name and joy by nature. But it was only six weeks after Joy was born that um, I took her to see the paediatrician that was looking after Chell. You see, I was a wee bit concerned because she looked so like her sister. And her brother had this big, big head and... And her head looked quite small. And my husband said, well, Paul was 8'14 and she's only seven and a half. I mean, what do you expect? And she is a girl. And our sister's not meant to look alike. But in order to uh, allay my fears, 
even though the doctor said on the day that she was discharged, go home and enjoy her, she's just perfect. And I took her home and then, as I say, six weeks later, we rang the paediatrician who was looking after Cheryl at this stage. And I told her I had a few concerns about the new baby and would she see her. And for the first time ever, I don't know what waiting lists are like in Australia, but for the first time ever, this doctor said, bring her up tomorrow and I'll see her at the end of my clinic. And I thought, whoa, that's quite amazing. And uh, uh, the plan was not to bother to tell any of the rest of the family because it was all me worrying and everything would be okay. Next morning, Cheryl woke up unwell and Philip had to stay at home with her. And uh, I took this little clandestine trip up into Belfast to go to the hospital and see the consultant. And after doing a few tests and sending her to x-ray for an ultrasound of her brain, when I came back, the first thing she did was drop a box of hankies in my knee. And she said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but Joy's brain has stopped growing. I'm sorry, but she has the same condition as her sister. I'm sorry, she said. And you know, ladies, if she'd taken a baseball bat out from underneath the table and hit me with it, it wouldn't have hurt me any more than those were. Because we'd had Cheryl for six years. And when she said she had the same condition as her sister, this time I knew what it meant. I knew that she would never be able to walk or talk. I knew she'd never hold her own head up by herself. I knew she'd never play with her brother's Lego. I knew that she'd never plant a, a kiss on my cheek or call my name. I knew it would be only a short time before the seizures would start and the back would twist and the hip would come out of joint. And I knew. And our little bundle of joy, as I took her back to the car and I clipped her into her little seat and I thought of telling her daddy, who absolutely adored her, that it was right and I didn't want to be right. And such a deep sense of unfairness overwhelmed me. And I said, that's not fair, God. Can't remember the journey home except for those words. I think I shouted it through the windscreen the whole way up the M2 towards Newton Abbey. That's not fair. Have we not learnt enough? You see, we had had six years with Cheryl, an absolutely beautiful dream of a child, who, although she had terrible problems, was a beautiful child. And I had learnt more about God through Cheryl than I'd ever imagined. I had got to know God through this book because every time another diagnosis was made, oh, I'm sorry, but she can't see, or you know, oh, I'm sorry, she's going to need surgery. Oh, I, every time I, I went to his word and I got to know, and I got to realize that God's view of perfection and ours is two completely different things. And I'd come to the point where I believe those words in Psalm 139, that God knows us from before we're born. And every day ordained for us is already written in his book before one of them comes to be. All of those things were in there and they were in here. But they were hard lessons to learn. And I didn't want to learn them again. And so I went into a pretty dark hole of disappointment and deep, deep sadness. But as I said, during those six years I had learned so much, I knew the importance of not neglecting God's word because God is a speaking God. I've said it before, I'll say it again. He's a speaking God. And so every morning, through my misery and my deep sadness, I just said to God, show me what you're trying to do here because I need to hear. I don't understand it and I don't like it. Speak to me. And every day I opened up a little devotional book because I couldn't study. I couldn't concentrate. And uh, I, I, I opened up a little devotional book similar to the type that I've now written myself. A little verse at the top and then a little story underneath. And on one particular morning, just a couple of weeks after we were told that Joy had the same condition as her sister, this is what I read. I won't read it all for sake of time, but this will give you an idea of how God spoke to my broken heart at that time. The verses from 1 Peter. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, even though it is tried with fire, 
that it might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And, and the reading underneath it was a conversation. The conversation was between uh, a shopkeeper, a man who owned a china shop, and a customer who had come in. And the customer starts the conversation and he says, what makes this set of china, he was looking at two different sets, so much more expensive than that one? And the reply came, this one had more work on it. It has been put through the fire twice. On this set, the flowers are in a yellow band, but in that one they are on a white background. This one had to be put through the fire a second time to get the design on it. And further down the page it said this, Perhaps some of us are like the costly china, being doubly tried in the fire, that we may be more valuable in the master's service. And written in block letters at the bottom of the reading was one sentence. Don't rebel at the second breath of the flame if he sends it. Couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe in the mercy of God that with black ink on a white page God spoke so directly to my heart. And as he, as I read it again, really out of shock at, at the accuracy of the reading for, for my situation, I could hear God speak to my heart. And what he said was, Catherine, can you trust me with the things that you don't understand? And I promise that I will do something beautiful in your life. You see, Catherine, there's more going on than you can see. That's the business about fairness, you see. You see, we can't make a judgment about fairness unless we can see the full picture. You can't make a judgment just from the position that you're standing in. You have to see the other side. And God has a plan. And his plan is a huge plan. And there are times when he takes us and he asks us to stand in a little dark place and we don't like it and it's painful. But God has a bigger picture and a bigger plan than we can see. Let me explain it to you this way. It's much easier to understand this way. Paul reached his teens and he wasn't too bad a teenager. I had a friend, although I doubt to call her that name, but she was a friend. And she said to me one day, she says, ah, he's a good wee boy. He's a good wee boy now. Just wait until he's a teenager. He'll go into his bedroom one day and shut the door and the next morning he'll come out a monster. Well, he didn't quite come out a monster. In fact, he was a good teenager. But you know, teenagers... They're learning, and they need to stretch their wings now and again. And one night he was going out, and he put his hand on the door, and he said, Bye, Mom, I'm going out. And I said, Bye, Paul, be back at 10 o'clock. And he said, 10 o'clock? That's too early, Mom. That's not fair. David's allowed to stay out until 11. And John has a key. He can come in whenever he wants. 10 o'clock? That's not fair. Now, from where he was standing as a teenager, do you know what? It wasn't fair. It was tough stuff. His mother was spoiling his fun and all the rest of it. But from where I was standing as a parent, I knew the dangers that lurked in our streets late at night. I knew the things that young people would do under cover of darkness that they would never do in the sunshine. And so, as someone who loved him, I saw a bigger picture than he did. And so, what was not fair to him was right from my perspective and was for his good. And so he went down, he slammed the door and huffed and away he went. And uh, I made myself a wee cup of tea and I went in and I sat on the settee and I was drinking my tea. And God said to me, Catherine, you see the next time you want to shake your fist and say, that's not fair, God. I just want you to picture your heavenly father across the room. And I just want you to realize that I see a completely different picture than you do. And I want you to realize that I only act for your good, even though it doesn't seem like it at the time. Ladies, we struggle with the question of fairness. We really do. And sometimes it's just not possible 
this side of heaven for us to see what's going on or to understand what God is doing. So he asks us to trust him when we have no idea what he's doing in our lives. You see, that's what faith is. Faith isn't that nice warm feeling you get when you do something nice or when you come to church. That's not faith. Faith is not that fuzzy feeling. Faith's hard. Faith's when God takes you to the edge and he says to you, step off. And you say, but I can't see what's ahead of me. I, I, I don't know. And he says, that's okay. I'm already there. Trust me. Faith is when God takes you to the edge and he says, step off and trust me. And you say, but, but I think this is going to hurt. And he says, that's okay. I bind up the brokenhearted and I mend those who are crushed in spirit. That's okay. Trust me. Ladies, faith is not easy. The other thing faith is not is it's not some leap in the dark and you just hope for the best. Faith is a reasoned choice because we know whom we are trusting. Faith in God is faith in the one who created the universe. Faith in God is the one who loved us enough to send his son to us. This is why, even though I don't like it, there are times when God says, trust me, even though you don't understand what's going on, it's a reasoned choice to step off and to trust him. That's what faith is. You know, there was a wonderful missionary lady from Northern Ireland called Amy Carmichael. Some of you may know her readings. And she wrote many, many amazing books. She worked in India uh, uh, rescuing um, little children who had been sold as temple prostitutes and did an amazing work there. And she wrote many things. But there's one little, one little clip that has undergirded me for many years. Because Amy Carmichael said, In acceptance lieth peace. In acceptance lieth peace. And so on that day when I read that reading... And God said to me, Catherine, you have to trust me, even though you can't see what's going on. I realized that the only time peace would come to my life was when I chose to trust and I accepted that God knew better than I did. And so here we were. We ended up with two profoundly disabled children and one happy, healthy boy in our home. But it wasn't all sadness by any means. This was our family, after all. This, these were our children and we loved them very, very much. But shortly after we were told of Joy's diagnosis, Cheryl became extremely ill. For the very first time, she had her first critical illness. And um, she survived that, and the doctor said, you know, Catherine, you need to talk to Paul about the fact that his sister will probably die soon. And it would be good for you to prepare him for that. And so we started telling this little, you know, kind of four-year-old we started talking to him about heaven. And we started talking to him about uh, what would happen to Cheryl after she died, that she would get a new body and all of those things. And I, we boys being we boys, you know, he asked all the usual, you know, will she be able to eat potato crisps in heaven, Mummy? <laughs> will she be able to ride a bike in heaven, Mummy? Will she be able to wear short trousers in heaven, Mummy? Paul loved getting his wee shorts on in any summer we had when he was small. If I told him that now, he would be mortified. Um, but Cheryl was very, very skinny and very cold, and she always had to have layers and layers on. And his idea was they were the changes that he was looking forward to for his sister. Now, hopefully we got a bit more theology in than that. But anyway, Cheryl became very sick, and um, they would say she wasn't going to see Christmas. And then she would get better. Wasn't going to see her birthday. It was in the summer. And then she would get better. And this went on for four more years. And then when she was 10, she took pneumonia during a very bad uh, flu epidemic that had hit the UK during that particular year. And uh, she'd taken the flu and she'd taken pneumonia. And the doctor said, you know, she's not going to see Christmas. It was just a few weeks before Christmas. And I looked at her and she says, I know I've said that before, but Catherine, this is really serious this time. And on this occasion, the doctor was right. Because just uh, two weeks before Christmas, uh, Cheryl died. Our beautiful blue-eyed blonde. Uh, the reason that I got up in the morning, the little one who had shown me so much in life, 
about love and about trust and about God and just about loving. And uh, she was taken from us and I had my head all full of all these things. I'd been through the Bible again and again. Look, what does it say about this? And what does it say about that? And all the knowledge was in here. But it wouldn't drop to my heart. So I was her mummy. She was our firstborn, our beautiful blue-eyed blonde. And I can honestly say that the grief that I suffered shocked me. Because I was also so convinced of what the change had meant for Cheryl. But my heart wouldn't follow my head. And so during what was almost a year, I was in a very dark place. I looked after my children and my husband and I did all the things that were expected of me. But as far as I was concerned, really, I might be able to turn up the corners of my lips, but I would never really smile again. And every day I used to ask God the same question. Show me if there's any reason left for me to live. I wasn't suicidal, but I just felt that I would never really live again. Not properly. Not have a joy in my heart anymore. And I was still walking with God, but it was like I had lead boots on. And uh, one Sunday afternoon, when Cheryl was, was almost a year dead, my husband had gone out to speak at a church, and Paul was at Sunday school. We have a, in those days, we had afternoon Sunday school. And he went to Sunday school, and Joy was having a wee nap, which was very rare for Joy, for she didn't like to sleep. And um, she was sleeping, and I had sat down in the quietness of the room, and I had been reading some verses from my Bible, and there was some music playing in the background, and I started to pray. And as I prayed, I prayed over all the same old things again and again. I, I just amazed at God's patience, that he understands these things. And I said to him, as I finished praying, Will you show me if there's any reason left for me to live? And as I opened my eyes and wiped away my tears, the words coming from the music centre, yes, girls, it was a little tape that went like this. You know, some of you don't know what they are. You find them in the museum under audio cassette. And they had... Has anybody still got one? <laughs> well, it was a... You, you're too young to have one. Far too young. And this little music cassette was playing and the words coming from them were these. I've finally found the reason for living. It's in giving every part of my life to him. All that I do, every word that I say, I'll be giving it all back to him. For we were the reason that he gave his life. We were the reason that he suffered and died to a world that was lost. He gave all he could give to show us the reason to live. He is my reason to live. And the person singing it in my wee house in Newton Abbey had far more reason to ask God that question than I did. Because at 17 years of age she had dived into uh, a bay in America and had broken her neck. Johnny Erickson Tada, some of you may have read her story. And she was paralysed from the neck down, could do absolutely nothing for herself. And yet here she was, belting out in my living room, I've found the reason to live. And I rewound it and I got it to the spot and I listened to it again. That was hard. And I listened to it again and, and I just couldn't believe what I was listening to. And God said to my heart, Catherine, to be a good wife and a good mother is right and proper, but it is not to be your reason to live. Put me first. Make me your reason to live and I cannot and I will not be taken away from you. You see ladies, I don't know about you but sometimes the things that we hold tightest are the things that disappear. It can be a business. It can be a career. It can be a love relationship Someone makes a promise that they're going to be with you till death do you part and they're not there anymore. It can be a child through waywardness, through drugs. It can be... And you, you've given everything to it. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying you should not be good mothers and that you should not give everything to what you do. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is God challenged my heart to put him first because he was the only thing that I could be absolutely sure that I would not lose. 
<coughs> and so I got out of the chair and onto my knees. <coughs> and this might be sounds a bit cliched, and I'm sorry, but I just don't know any other way to say it. But I went back to the cross. It wasn't for forgiveness I had been it. Forgiven of my sin when I was 14 years of age. This time I came to give, him my, to give Jesus my heartache and my pain and my grief and my disappointment. And I can tell you now, all these years later, I can tell you what I said. I said, you take it because I can't carry it anymore. I can't. I can't carry it anymore. And in return, he gave me back my reason to live. It would be 10 more years, and I, I'm going to finish because I've run over my time, and I apologize for that. It would be 10 more years before Joy left us. She was 13 when she died, and um, she must have been the smallest teenager in Northern Ireland when she died because she weighed all of 22 pounds in weight when she died when she was 13 years of age. And she was our, our Joy Bells, as my daddy would have called her. Joy by name and Joy by nature. And hers was a completely different death and mine was a completely different grief I grieved of course absolutely adored her and I still grieve of course I do but ladies I can stand before you and I can truthfully and honestly say I never visited the place of devastation with Joy's death that I did with Cheryl not because I was strong but because every day since that particular Sunday afternoon, before I put my feet on the floor in the morning, I say, God, I choose today to put you first in my life. I choose today to follow you, whatever happens. And I know that you will walk with me today, whatever lies in this day. And so her grief the grief for joy was completely different. Yes, of course I grieved. Miss them both very much. But God, whenever Joy died at home, whereas Cheryl died in hospital, and we, we managed to get her home from hospital just a few hours before she died, and she died in her own bed with her daddy and me and her big brother. And as we were sitting in the bedroom, just during those last moments, God gave me a beautiful picture of what was happening to her because... I had a little silk butterfly clipped to her bedside table. And it was in the wee hours of the morning, as we would say in Ireland. It was kind of almost five o'clock in the morning in the winter, or in, in March, so it was still very dark. And, and the light was shining through the butterfly. And as I held Joy in my arms, just as she was dying, I, I was, God gave me that picture of the butterfly because you know butterflies are not born a butterfly. I don't need to tell you as intelligent people that. It's born a little wriggly caterpillar. And in fact, it's rather vulnerable as it crawls around in the dirt. It's easily squashable, you know. And I'm sure there are times when it looks up and it wishes it could fly like that butterfly up there and that it could fly above all of these difficulties that it has as a little, as a little caterpillar. But as you know, one, one day it goes through this transformation when it goes into a chrysalis and then eventually it breaks free and it's no longer no longer held in the dirt no longer vulnerable it's free and it flies above the limitations that it once had and as I held joy in my arms God said to me she's going to fly she's going to be free of all of the limitations that she had here and he gave me a promise and the promise that he gave me was from uh, verses that are read out at most funerals, and I don't think they should be only read at funerals because it's a shame to leave it just for that time. But on days when I'm having those miss you moments as you have them, I'm a wee bit of a strange character. I think you've already discovered that. I like to read out loud because you can't fall asleep when you're reading out loud. And when you read out loud, you not only see the words, but you hear them. You should, you should read out loud. It is a wonderful practice. And whenever I'm feeling a bit sorry for myself or I'm missing the girls, I take my Bible and I go into my study and I shut the door. And I open at this wonderful words from uh, the book of Revelation. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, the home of God is now among his people. 
and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. And he will remove all their sorrows and there will be no more death or crying or pain for the old world and its evils are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. Write this down. For what I am telling you is trustworthy. And it is true. Ladies, can I tell you, now is not all there is. I don't know what you've come through. I don't know what some of you are going through. I don't know what's in the bend in your road. I have no idea. But can I tell you that now is not all there is. And in one of my favourite verses in scripture, it says in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11, he makes all things beautiful in his time. How does he do it? I don't know. But I have proved down through all these years that every promise he makes, he keeps true. So one day he's going to make it true. That's not a hard one to trust. You see, ladies, this world is not enough to heal our broken hearts. It's not enough to give us hope when everything around us seems hopeless. It's not enough to take the place of those we have loved and lost. But Jesus is. He is enough for now. But that's not all. He's enough for when we leave this world behind. Because one day, he will make all things beautiful in his time. I'm leading my child to the heavenly land. I'm guiding her day by day and I ask her now as I take her hand to come home by a rugged way. It's not the way she herself would choose for its beauty she cannot see. But she knows not what her soul would lose if she trod not that path with me. Can we just pray together for a few moments? Father, we come to you this evening and we just want to say thank you. Thank you that you're a God who can be trusted. Thank you that although there are heartaches in this life, that there is coming a day when you will make everything beautiful, even though we don't understand how. We can't see when, and we might question what you're doing in our lives. We thank you that we can trust you, because you loved us enough to send your son to die for us. The one who knew all about suffering is the one in whom we can trust. And so, Lord, I commit these lovely ladies into your care. For some, this hour has been a difficult one. Will you just minister to their hearts? For others, they're in a good place and maybe this has turned out to be maybe a morbid evening for them. But, oh, Father, how I pray that they will realise that this is, this is building time in their lives. Help them to build that faith and that trust in the God who will never forsake them. And, Father, we just pray, Lord, that for each home that's represented and each life that is here, that you will unravel and uh, unfurl, Lord, I should say, your plan for each of our lives. And may we be prepared to walk around the bends in the road with you. In Jesus' name.